I do not have a high net worth background. I didn't know anybody in the high net worth community in Kansas City at the time. These are all the folks I have to raise capital from. My people were like the founders, the entrepreneurs, right? Like community people. And so I, you know, I had one person who, who I was talking with, he was like, you know what? Forget raising this fund, just come work for me. You can find me investments, I'll pay you a salary and you can take a piece of the carried interest on the, on the investments. And I can tell you that was, those types of offers were very tempting. It's like, oh, you mean I don't have to go out and raise my own fund, which I have no idea how to do or who to raise it from. But I was like, you know what? I have to force myself to do this. And so on purpose, I talked to some local media who I was friends with and basically like put the word out in the local media, I was raising this fund to force myself to do it. Even though I hadn't raised a dollar, like, okay, <laughs> pressure's on, self-inflicted. I have to go do this now. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore. And today I am joined by John Fine. I'm really excited about this one because this guest is a little bit different. You know, as a byproduct of pumping these episodes out month after month, the, the listenership is getting bigger and I'm starting to have people call up and say, hey, really like your podcast would you consider having so-and-so on there? And so for all the listeners out there, please continue that. That's, that's just amazing that it's come around to that. And my good friend, Cam Mosley, called up and said, Michael, I love what you're doing with this podcast. You need to meet John Fine. And so we got on the phone a couple months ago, immediately hit it off, and I thought, I've got to have this guy on the podcast. He's the managing partner of Firebrand Ventures. It's a venture capital firm with offices in Kansas City. Austin and Boulder. Prior to find, founding Firebrand, John served as managing director for Techstars. They had about 40 programs around the world. And he's been very involved in Kansas City, which is near and dear to my heart because that's where our headquarters are, and invested in about 30 startups there. He's got a passion for building startup ecosystems. He's very involved in Kansas City startup community since 2012 serving on several advisory boards and community organizations. It's my pleasure to join my friend, John Fine. Welcome to The Climb. Thanks, Michael. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So there's tons to peel back here, and I think your business model is really interesting. You've told me several bits and pieces about the various funds and how those are going, and we'll dive into all that. But as we always do, let's go back to the beginning. Tell me about John Fine 101 where you were born, interesting things that happened along the way, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so even though I'm, I'm in the Midwest here in Kansas City and I've been here for 15 years, I'm, I'm originally from the East Coast. So I grew up in a town called Brookline, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston. And it's funny because when I tell people these days I'm from Brookline, they're always like, oh, Brookline, you know, it's like, you know, upscale, super upscale, like suburb quite pricey if you want to try and live there. It wasn't like that when I was growing up there. My parents divorced when I was five. And so I was raised, you know, mostly by single mom. And it was interesting because she was awesome. And, you know, her thing was no matter what, and she was really determined to further her career, even though, you know, like a, probably a lot of women her age, she got married really young. She had kids really young, which interrupted her, her education, but she was really determined on furthering herself. And, but in the meantime, she had to work a lot of odd jobs. But no matter what, it was sit-down dinner, a cook dinner every night. Like that was, that was the deal, which looking back, I, I really appreciate it now. And, you know, the, the other thing that was interesting growing up in Brookline, even though you could have very relatively little means financially and, and live there, a lot of people were, were pretty well off. And so pretty much all my friends and a lot of people I knew were had money. I didn't. And so, you know, it was an interesting position to be in where my friends are like, yeah, we're going to go skiing. It's like, I can't afford that. <laughs> like, I don't have any money to like buy all that stuff. So we're going to rent it. But I loved growing up there. I Boston was kind of like my playground, you know, as a kid, I'd be hopping on the tee for like a dime when I was five, six, seven years old. I have an older brother who's three years older. So I was always tagging along with him and his friends. 
And so another big part of our upbringing was sports craze household, always playing sports year round. You know, it was baseball was the biggest. Everybody, almost everybody I knew wanted to play for the Red Sox. And so I, you know, I started playing baseball when I was really little and played through high school. And, but, you know, it was pickup games of whatever. It was street hockey. It was football. And in the winter, it was tackle football in the snow. You know, we had a hoop, a basketball hoop in our driveway. Like that was the outlet all the time. And so it was great. I really, I really enjoyed growing up there. I was fortunate to have an older brother, I think, too, in school. Like, kind of, he was always kind of looking out for me in high school. Like, I had a pretty great time in high school. You know, I feel, you know, it can be a hard, hard period for a lot of kids. And looking back, I just feel like I was, I was kind of fortunate. Like, I really enjoyed the 80s. I, I would tell people all the time I miss the 80s so much <laughs> because, especially because the 80s were like, for most of the 80s, I, I, 80s, I was in high school and college. Right. And I had a really good time in both. But I, you know, at the same time, I wasn't one of these kids, and maybe this is more illusion than reality, but I wasn't one of these kids who knew what they, they always knew what they wanted to do. They always knew what they wanted to be. I had absolutely, absolutely no idea. And so I majored in, when I got into college, uh, I went to Clark University in Worcester, Mass, because <laughs> it was funny. I went to Brookline High, so all public schools, which I'm a big a fan of, a big advocate for. And, and then I went, to, I went to Clark, which was like my fifth choice. And so I was an underachiever academically in high school, but I really wanted to go to Clark because they were, at the time, renowned for their psychology program. Their claim to fame was that Sigmund Freud, he chose Clark. It was the only American university where he visited and spoke. So they took credit to them, kudos to their marketing department, because they took that little nugget, that Sigmund Freud event, and turned it into like a world-class psychology program. So I, I majored in psychology there, got my degree. I thought for a while it's what I wanted to go into, but I can tell you, Going in, I was probably thinking about grad school and getting my PhD. By the time I hit senior year, I was like, there's no way I can do any more years of college, at least not right now. I just couldn't, I just didn't have the patience. And I really admire people who can go on and get advanced degrees. I couldn't do it. And so, and plus I was in a, I was in a pretty good amount of, of student debt at the time from loans and that was piling up. And I was like, how much more do I need to take out if I'm going to grad school? So I, I graduated. I, the first job I got was a counselor in a group home out of college. Because again, I, I thought, okay, let's see what's in this field, right, of psychology. Maybe I can help kids. And it's funny because, you know, this was in, I graduated in 89. And <laughs> they called the group home at the time. This, today, this would be very much politically incorrect. But they called it a group home for emotionally disturbed adolescents. Isn't that every adolescent? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like how, <laughs> looking back now, it's like, I can't believe they called it that. But really, it was like it was kids who had a really hard time, a yeah. really terrible home life, experienced a lot of abuse and other terrible things. And I can tell you that was the hardest job I've ever had in my life. I was probably ill-equipped you know, at age 22. I lasted six months. And so anyway, uh, but it was an incredible experience. And it was an eye-opening experience to see what these kids have gone through and which like, were committed to try to figuring out life, right? In the midst of still going through a lot of stuff, you know, with their families and just trying to get through school. So that lasted six months. And then I was like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> it's like, I was working at two gyms to just like pay my rent. And I have this degree in psychology, but I know I didn't want to go into psychology. And so my dad had worked for Digital Equipment Corporation for, for many, many, many years, a couple of decades. And, you know, Digital Equipment Corporation, being a VC now, I find it interesting because they were like the first VC-backed technology company in the U.S., which is pretty cool. But also, they were like the Apple of the 70s, right? Like, they, they were the dominant mainframe computer company. And so they never made the transition to personal computers, and that's why they eventually you know, got absorbed by Compaq and HP. But the cool thing for me as a kid was like, we had this deck terminal in the basement. And like, my friends thought I was really weird because like, no one was on computers back then. But I was on this like weird terminal that you had to like dial into this 
the thing with your modem, like plug the phone into the modem, like in war games, the movie. And like, I loved it. And so that's what I just gravitated towards when I realized I wasn't cut out for psychology. And so I, I just, I worked my way up over the years to crappy entry level technical support jobs. Cause that's all I could, that's all I was qualified to do. And then eventually led to sort of getting into IT, didn't really like that. And then, uh, but it was a good pathway for me at the time. And then eventually got into product. And as I, and then I joined startups during the dot-com boom. But like, so the, the big, one of the big turning points for me, and by the way, I would classify my background in general as lots of time feeling lost, lots of times feeling like, I don't know what the hell I wanted to do with my life. But knowing that I wanted something more fulfilling than what I was doing in the current time, and also being very, very lucky at different parts of my life. And, and one time that I was just flat out lucky was when my girlfriend and I decided we wanted to move from Boston to San Diego. And this was in 91. And we had like no money. I had only enough money to like get us across in my like terrible car. It was a Hyundai. And like barely made, I did. I still remember I had to change the tires halfway across the country. And then when we finally like barely arrived in San Diego, it died. And so, but it did. so it barely got us there. And it was just a great time to be in Southern California. It wasn't super crowded. It wasn't expensive. We could afford to live there. And I was still working crappy jobs. But like by the time, you know, the mid to sort of late nineties happened, this is when the dot-com boom was taking off. And I joined my first startup in 97. And then I worked for a succession of five startups from like uh, 97 to 2005. And one of them I co-founded. So it really like going out there and during that time, especially really opened my eyes to the technology industry, to startups, what it meant, what it even meant to work in a startup and just how to navigate that. And also keep in mind, this was during a time, this was like before accelerator programs for incubators, like there weren't the resources that founders have today. And so you had to like figure out like, how can I even network with people? How do I meet people? How do I meet mentors? How do I find people who are smarter and more experienced than I am? Like ask them questions. So I just like fumbled around and tried to figure it out. And none of those five startups I was a part of were hugely successful. There were a couple singles and doubles in there, no home runs. Uh, the one I co-founded failed like right when the dot-com bubble burst. Um, we were just about to raise a Series A and sign our term sheet. And not only did they cancel the term sheet, the, that VC ended up shutting down, which was actually not uncommon in 2000 and 2001. It was a crazy time and people just lost faith in technology in general. They thought it was a scam, you know? And so that was an interesting time. Like that was a huge learning experience. No, I, I know the feeling on that because I, I kind of caught the bug of the tail end of the dot-com business. I got out of college in the mid-90s when it was really hitting and took a job as a recruiter for a, they had, they had a technology platform where companies would hire us to go find Java and C++ programmers. And the company that hired us and put us on retainer was in Austin, which is where I grew up. And so it was easy for me to position Austin as like a great place to live. I mean, look at it now. So I would start recruiting these people out of these companies. And I found, I, I should have known at the time, but I found this one up in Plano and was just pulling. I mean, they had great, like I, they had some of the best programmers in the world up there. It was like, right at the beginning of, of the email marketing craze and the analytics that you could capture and how many clicks and forwards and websites they went to and friends they sent it to and times they reopened and all, the, all that, that benchmarking that people really wanted. Now, was EDS there already? EDS was already here, yeah. This company uh, was called E2 Communications. And so I remember my phone ringing one day and... It says E2 on there. And I'm like, oh, great. This guy's finally calling me back. You know, we're going to get another one. And it was the VP of sales for the company. And he was like, hey, stop recruiting all of our people. And I'm like, man, I'm just doing my job. Like, I just graduated from college. You know, so they give me a script. I call all these people. I make like 100 phone calls a day. You know, why don't you pay your people more and give them more stock options? They'll quit leaving. That's right. And he kind of paused for a second. He goes, you know, 
I guess you're pretty good at what you're doing. Do you, would you consider coming and working with me? I'm like, yeah, I hate this job. Like, that'd be great. And he's like, all right, meet me for coffee tomorrow. So we cranked out this deal and I went to work for E2 and it was the same thing. I mean, it was just, you know, that maturation of the tech bubble was coming to an end. And this was a great idea, but they were out spending what was coming in the door. And I remember I had a huge month. It was Christmas. I was all excited about my bonus and it didn't come. And I walked into the CFO's office and I'm like, hey, where's my bonus, dude? You know, like I earned this thing. And he's like, sorry, we don't have it right now. And I thought, okay, this thing is going to crumble. So been right. there. And then, you know, I, I love the the parallels of our growing up. I mean, my parents got divorced as well. And my mom was a stickler to that every night sit down for dinner. Like I remember the first time I went and spent the night at a friend's house and they didn't have dinner at six. And like, I was so hungry by seven 30. I think I started crying because I was like so used <laughs> to eating every day at six o'clock. And then I, you know, I hope that my younger brother would say the same thing as you did about yours. You know, you got to watch out for the little brother in high school. It is tough. And I made damn sure that, you know, if you mess with him, you're messing with me. And, you know, hopefully it made it a little easier on him. So again, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. You know, the other thing going back again, you know, the other thing that I'm very grateful for living, you know, growing up at that time was living in a time where as a kid, we had no supervision. It was like, be back at dinner, right? Like, go do whatever you're going to do at a very young age, you know, as long as you're home in time for dinner. And by the way, I also had no curfew when I was in high school, which was pretty awesome. But, um, you know, you figure it out as a kid and just having that free time, you know, everything wasn't overscheduled. Yeah, we played sports. We're on sports teams. You know, that was, you know, we had practices and stuff, but it didn't feel every minute of the day had to be scheduled. You know, I just, I really, looking back, I just, because it's really not like that anymore for probably a bunch of different reasons, but I loved having that that free time as a kid. I think it's hugely valuable. Now, I couldn't agree more. You know, it, it's kind of becoming a theme on this podcast, and I guess we're all at the age that we are reflecting on how we grew up and the influences around that. But like, your environment is such a key part of that. We had uh, a couple podcasts ago, I had my brother, and then three other brothers that I grew up with in, in Dripping Springs, which is right outside of Austin, two of which founded Yeti Coolers. And, you know, to just reflect back on that freedom, right? We didn't, I mean, we were given a, a gun and a fishing pole and a sandwich, and it was like, see you later. And we would play all day, no cell phone, no checking in, no schedule, no nothing. And I think back and like that absolutely has an impact on the way I think about things and the way I go about my day and the way I try to parent my kids as well. But today is like this, it's a very schedule driven world. And, you know, it, I, it's, it's alarming. I don't know what we do about it. It's kind of, uh, you know, we're a victim of our own success and efficiencies, I think, but you got to have that free headspace and that time to just go, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Somewhere along the line, somehow like free time became like a bad thing. And, you know, it's just, and even as an adult, you know, it's just like, really, that's what so many of so many, many of us are fighting for is free time, right? Like that's, there's a ton of value in that. You know, it's that old uh, Bill Gates, you know, anecdote about when he was a kid, you know, like he used to have thinking time, you know, and he had like a conference room. It wasn't a playroom. It was a conference room. And it's where he just did a lot of brainstorming. But whatever you use it for, I mean, I just, I, yeah, I don't know. Same with, same with me. Like, I don't know why or how it's gotten to the way it is, but I look back on that and I'm like, you know, I feel like you don't realize at the time, but you're, you're learning, you're figuring things out on your own. You know, you're learning how to be independent. You're figuring out how to get around, like, you know, be resourceful. I just think there's a lot, there's a lot to that. So anyway, it's, or like, you know, back, I'm really, I feel, I feel really lucky to, have, you know, been through that all these apps now right to like help you with that like an app yeah. to help you meditate or help remind you to get up and walk around or it's like wait what that's you right know, the, i know technology is taking over for sure yeah so yeah that's a, that's a whole other conversation we may go there the, the so you're out in california you made it out there with your girlfriend 
technology has grabbed a hold of you. You're kind of getting the glimpse of of the VC world and how to network and kind of fast forward us from from that into, you know, I know there was there's tech stars where we're talking about you did spend some time, you know, at least in one aspect of my in, in, of my industry with United Health Group. But, you know, kind of catch us back up and, and get us into current yeah. today. Yeah, you know, so I joined my first startup when I was, I got a late start. I was 30. I was 97. And it was funny, too, because it didn't last very long. It was, they raised 10 million, you know, startups are raising very large sums for those days and just without a, any kind of a plan. And really, in some cases, you know, no business model whatsoever. And I think that was that first startup I joined. And I remember I joined them and, and sort of at the tail end of my tenure with them, I turned 30. That was the worst birthday I've ever had because, and this here's, here's a, a Texas reference for you. So I read that, you know, Michael Dell started his computer company in his dorm, you know, just building, putting together PCs and selling them to his friends and later, you know, to a bunch of, you know, a lot of people. And I always sort of looked up to him, you know, as like, you know, the prototypical entrepreneur starting at a young age, totally enterprising while he's going to college. And like, I just felt terrible about where I was at age 30. Like I thought I'd be so, so much farther beyond where I was working, you know, as an IT and a product guy for a startup. And so it was hard. It was a really difficult time. And, you know, I think it, it, it all, the, probably the common thread, thread through all this is sort of like mental health, mental wellness, you know, self-care. And obviously the big mistake I was making there was comparing myself to people in a very unrealistic way because we all have our own path, Right. And I wasn't understanding that at all. But I, I continued to work for startups. And so I, and then eventually, like I said, co-founded my own startup in 99. That failed in 2000. Or for one more startup after that, which was number five. And that one did okay. It sort of eked out a business for a while and ended up getting acquired. But then, you know, I was five startups back to back. And our son had been born. And so we got married, you know, my girlfriend and I who went out there, we got married while we were out there, had our son. And I was like, look, I just need to get like a regular job for a while. You know, it's like, I can't, I can't do another startup. And, you know, we need like normal benefits and stuff. You know, we have a family now. So I got a job at a healthcare company called Prescription Solutions. And they were really at the forefront of the, the mail order pharmacy trend. And I loved working for them. They brought me on as a project manager, but I didn't know at the time, only I found out two weeks later, they wanted me to take over this huge project, which was spinning up the new operation here in Kansas City. And so they, they called me in, the VP called me into his office. He was like, look, we need you to do this, right? Like, you have a $100 million budget. You need to go out there, not relocate, but you need to be there. And you need to, first of all, physically build out this facility. It's got to go live in nine months. So you got you to do the construction. You got to hire people. It's got to go live in nine months. And you got to scale it to 1,500 employees. And I won't say the, the revenue number, but it was in the billions per year that it needs to get to. And I was like, all right, well, so much, first of all, so much for their normal job. This is not a normal job. But also, secondly, I recognize the opportunity. Like, this is, this is an incredible offering that's on the table here. I better grab it. And so I, I commuted from San Diego to Kansas City for like six months, which sucked. I was away from my family a lot. I was exhausted. And I was like, all right, Something's got to give. But in the meantime, I kind of fell in love with the Midwest. Like I had previously never been here before. And I'd only lived on the coasts and experienced the coast. And so, <laughs> you know, houses were a whole lot more affordable here than they were in San Diego. And so I told my wife about it. And she's like, well, let's, let's give it a shot. So we, we relocated here in 2006, right in the middle of that project. I was still working my ass off. It felt very much like a startup. And we had serious, like, drop dead timelines where we had to go live because of legislation that was going through Congress. So, anyway, in the middle of that project, we were acquired by United Health Group for a little over $8 billion. And I saw that project through, it was a multi year project. But United is really, really great at integrating the companies they acquire. Good for United. Not so great if you want to start up culture. 
nothing against United. I'm sure they're innovative in their own way. At the time for me, I was like, this is not, this is not the environment I want to work in. I want to stay with something entrepreneurial. I gave it a shot. I mean, it was cool. Like in your little, you know how it goes. Like when you're in a decent sized company, you're kind of in your own bubble in a lot of ways. You're part of that culture. You're part of that world. A lot of your friends are people you work with. And for, to them, I had like an amazing job, right? Like I was, I had like a dotted line reporting relationship to the CEO of United Health Group. Like he would jet in on the corporate jet. I would walk him through the progress in the facility. At one point, I had to pitch him for another facility for another hundred million. I had to ask him for, and this is pretty hard-nosed businessman. And I didn't, I didn't realize at the time I learned after the meeting, my boss, he was like wanting, you know, I was the guy who had to pitch it, even though my boss was in the room with him. My boss was like, Hey, that was, that was great. I was really, I was like, what do you mean? It was great. He, he was like stone faced the entire time. He didn't say yes to anything I was asking for. He's like, they never say yes. Like you're never going to get a yes. If you don't get a no, that's really great. So I learned some of those like dynamics of, of corporate life, but it wasn't fun like it was before. It didn't feel entrepreneurial. And so after a few more years of that, and again, it was like managing massive, like multi-billion dollar, multi-year projects, 100-person project teams. It just didn't feel the same. And so what I decided to do was, I'm just going to start showing up. And this is an example of how just showing up is really great. And I'm just going to show up and be present in this Kansas City startup community and just meet as many people as I can. And with one goal, figure out where is my place in this community? Where can I add value? And I didn't know if I was going to like create, start my own startup, join an existing startup. Those are pretty much the only two options I was thinking about. And then I get an email from the CEO of Techstars. And it was very cryptic. And I still have it somewhere. And I didn't quite know what he was asking me. It sounded like he was like wondering if I wanted to be an investor in the Techstars ecosystem. And I responded back and I was like, I'm not really sure what you're asking me, but like, that's not what I do. But I would love to be involved, you know, in some way. And he, and he responded back and said, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We're interested in talking with you about the managing director position for our new Techstars program in Kansas City. I was like, okay, great. So long story short, after meeting the team, which was relatively small at that time at Techstars, and spending more time with David Cohen, who's amazing, I went from a Fortune 10 company to a startup accelerator, and which is something I never envisioned doing. I was actually on the fence early on, and a couple of people who I was friends with who were very close to Techstars were basically like, dude, you're an idiot if you don't take this role. Like, This is such an opportunity for you. And of course, they were right. And so I was there for three years. Incredible, incredible learning experience from the best in the business. I'm learning how to be an investor from Brad Feld and David Cohen and people at top venture funds around the country who are in the Techstars network. And I learned a couple of things. I learned a lot of things. I learned a couple of things about sort of the investment climate in the Midwest. One was at the time, and this was 2015, 2016, there weren't enough VCs in the middle part of the country who I thought were founder-friendly, proactive, responsive, accessible. Like a lot of them that I knew, I just felt like were kind of sitting back and waiting for people to come to them. And I didn't feel like that was the right way to do it. And I didn't feel like the terms that, that a lot of these founders were getting on deals were great. And the other thing was, you know, Midwest communities like Kansas City were losing great entrepreneurs to the coast because that's where they felt like they could raise money. That's where they felt like they could recruit and grow their companies. I just felt like this is a huge missed opportunity. So that, that, that was really the impetus to, to launch Firebrand. And I remember, I still remember I was in Las Vegas at a conference. David Cohen was there, who was my boss. And I pulled him aside and I was like, you know, this is what I'm thinking about doing. I really want to do this fund. A, do you think it's a good idea? And B, if I do this, do I have your support? Because it probably means I'm going to have to leave Techstars. And of course, he was like, yes, it's a great idea. Yes, you have my support, 1,000%, go do it. Like, that's just who he is. You were like a trailblazer. I mean, the great migration that's going on right now, you were just 20 years ahead of your time. That's right. I, you know, I never thought of it like that. It's funny. Yeah, it's, you know, buy low, sell high, right? Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, it, it is interesting just up and down the middle of the country in my backyard, Austin, the Metroplex. I mean, tech has just gone berserk. Kansas City, Boulder, where you have an office. I mean, it just seems like it is not just Silicon Valley anymore. It's it's rampant. You know, I first started spending significant time in Austin starting in 2013 after I joined Techstars because they've always said they for several years they'd had a great program there. And to see just taking Austin as an example, how it's been transformed in the last eight years is mind blowing. And it's kept its culture, which to me is the most important thing for a place like Austin. So yeah, I mean, these that so that became our thesis, right? So the, our thesis became initially we called it Greater Midwest, but it was really about hey, let's let's be a big player in these markets where, first of all, there are not that many other VCs, and second of all, there are these like all star founders who are relatively unknown just by virtue of the fact that they're not in Silicon Valley or New York, maybe. And even to today, that I mean, that's that's still our thesis for the most part today is, you know, let's play a big role in these in these underserved, underfunded communities. So, yeah, so that's how it started. My goal. And by the way, I went out to raise the first fund. My target was seven million. I was going to go out at a higher number. You know, I got more great advice from David Cohen, which is like, pick your minimum. Like pick your minimum number that that you can live off of and go out at that. If you raise more than that, awesome. You're oversubscribed, right? Let's that's great. But you know, be conservative. And so I was. And, you know, we ended up getting oversubscribed from, from seven to, to about 18. But I can tell you, I'm sure there were plenty of people who didn't think I could raise the fund. I didn't know if I could raise the fund. Keep in mind. Considering my background, I do not have a high net worth background. I didn't know anybody in the high net worth community in Kansas City at the time. These are all the folks I have to raise capital from. My people were like the founders, the entrepreneurs, right? The community people. And so I, you know, I had one person who, who I was talking with. He was like, you know what? Forget raising this fund. Just come work for me. You can find me investments. I'll pay you a salary and you can take a piece of the carried interest on the, on the investments. And I can tell you that was, those types of offers were very tempting. It's like, oh, you mean I don't have to go out and raise my own fund, which I have no idea how to do or who to raise it from. But I was like, you know what? I have to force myself to do this. And so on purpose, I talked to some local media who I was friends with and basically like put the word out in the local media. I was raising this fund to force myself to do it. Even though I hadn't raised a dollar, it's like, okay, <laughs> pressure's on, self-inflicted. I have to go do this now. And so it was the first four or five months was nonstop back-to-back meetings, trying to convince people to invest in this vision that we had. I still remember like when I, it was slow going, but you know, it was, it was progress and we'd raise in chunks and invest out in chunks and like repeat, repeat. And I still remember it was like the end of 2016 after about five, six months of raising when finally the fund got to a size where I could pay my bills. I was like, like huge, huge weight off my shoulders. I, and then about a month later, I was in Boulder and it was like one of these really, really cold, like raw winter days in Boulder. And I was having dinner with Brad Feld and one of his partners at Foundry Group. And it was probably... It was probably miserable for them because it was me like firing a thousand questions at them throughout this entire dinner. And one of them was, hey, I hit my 7 million target. Should I just stop? Like, it's been six months. And they looked at me, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you stop? Keep going, keep going. Of course, that's the correct answer. And it's not what I wanted to do because I wanted to do the easy thing and, you know, stop asking people for money. But I kept going. And that's how we got to the 18 or a little under 18 million, closed it. And now, you know, fast forward to today, that first fund is fully deployed. David Cohen still to this day is like my top mentor and advisor. And now we're raising, we're not raising, we're investing out of our second fund, which we were able to raise, knock on wood, the first fund is doing quite well. And it's a $40 million fund. And so 
That's fun too has a cool story, a very unique story that I actually don't know if this, I've never heard about this before, but it just worked out for us. So my friend, Chris Marks, who's in Boulder, we had known each other since my Techstars days. Around the time I started raising the first Firebrand fund, he was raising and investing out of the first of his fund, which is called Blue Note Ventures. So we kind of commiserated and we get together every time I went out to Boulder and and we ended up co-investing in four companies together, our respective first funds. And then when I was raising the second fund, I was like, there's no way I can do this myself. Like I have to bring on a partner. And I remember something he mentioned to me, like it's totally in passing, but it caught, it like stuck in my head. We were having coffee one day in Boulder, probably about a year prior. And he was like, just as I was getting up to go, he was like, hey, you know, let's, let's think of ways that we can work a lot more closely together than just co-investing. Because we, we have like same types of outlook on investing in founders, working with founders, sort of like supporting the person, not just the company. And so I called him and I was like, hey, remember you said that thing about working closely together? Like, what if we joined up? He was raising his second fund. I was raising my second fund. So we did. We ended up merging the funds essentially under sort of the Firebrand umbrella only because Firebrand was the bigger fund at the time. And so he ended up joining for fund two. And it was like, I can't imagine it going better than it has. The crazy part is that was like two years ago, which is insane to think about. But yeah, it's the merger went awesome, super smooth. It's been two years. And it's just been a great relationship. And again, I think it's, we share a lot of values. And one of, the, one of the things we really, you know, going tying back to mental health, one of the things we really both are huge advocates for are mental health and mental wellness, you know, especially in the startup arena. You know, I mean, founders are probably predisposed to begin with to mental health issues because they're, they're different and some of them might be a little obsessive. Some of them might be a little ADHD or whatever you want to call it. Plus, then you throw in the highs and lows, the extremes, startup life, like it just is a natural fit. And so we're actually going to be putting more and more of an emphasis on that and, and operationalizing sort of mental wellness as part of what we do a little bit more at Firebrand. But that was just one of the ways that we sort of were aligned. So anyway, that brings us up to up to present day. And I'm just very grateful for there been, oh, when I moved to California, when I got a job at Prescription Solutions to, to scale that, that operation in Kansas City, when I got the opportunity at Techstars, when I was raising at the, in the right place at the right time for Firebrand 1, Chris joining for Firebrand 2. I mean, all these things, yes, you have to work hard, but you know, very, very grateful for being you know, right place at the right time so many places in my career. You know, I think it's just fascinating to think about, you know, we're, we're so pre-wired to think that you've got to do this and it's got to be this sequential path to get you to the next thing. You've got to make good grades in high school. You got to go to a good college. You probably should go get a postgraduate degree. Then you're going to go on to this job. Then you need to be married by 23. Then you have to have, your, you know, programmatic. But in reality, especially in the entrepreneurial world, it's the exact opposite. And that's the story I'm hearing you tell that rather than be so worried or attached to a process and an outcome, just pay attention and be very intentional and focused around what you're doing. And it's no different in my business as we're trying to bring young production-minded people in to create additional revenue for our firm. You know, they think they've got to be an expert in X, Y, and Z by day three. And it's like, no, you got to do a whole lot of things by day 333 and 3,033 and just trust your process and your swing. Be very focused, be very diligent, but don't worry as much about what's going to happen tomorrow is just putting your head down and doing the work, right? And you're a, per you're a perfect example of that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I think it's, it's interesting from where I sit working with so many different types of companies and the the perspective and insight it gives me into to business you know with 30 plus portfolio companies now under these various funds and I think you said fund 3 will start next year and that'll be 
two, three X the size of fun too, which is just fascinating. You know, how does that shape your views of things? Just seeing all these companies from their infancy when you get involved to to where they are today. Yeah, it's well, a couple of things. You know, first of all, you know, I was a founder myself, and so I feel like I bring a lot of empathy to the table to begin with uh, because I've been there. But also seeing so many different founders of different walks of life, but it's all the same type of journey. It's kind of what you were saying before, just how when you're younger, you're desperate to have it all figured out. You're desperate to look smart and be accomplished. And when you get older, you wish you could tell your younger self, don't worry about any of that. Just learn and surround yourself with great people and smart people and you'll be fine right you'll you'll figure out your path and i wish i would have known that of course i would have worried a lot less but it's the same thing with founders you know it's they're all even they're all different types of companies different types of people it's a lot of the same learnings that they have to go through when i first started working with founders i was way too controlling and I wanted to tell them exactly what to do. You can't do that. You know, that's not an effective approach, I think, to any relationship. And so, you know, what I learned was that trust is everything. Trust is the foundation for every single thing that we do. We fail on our side to build trust with founders. It's not going to be a great relationship. We're not really going to be able to help because we won't know what's going on because they're not going to trust us to share that information. And so venture capital, I'm sure, from the outside, looks like a very transactional type of business. You do a deal, you write a check, you get ownership. At some point, there's, a, there's an exit and you sell and you make money or, or don't make money. Like, but what's between all of that and what makes it all work when it does work is are the relationships, the authentic relationships based on trust. And I, I feel like that's the only way you can really help or be, be value added to founders. And, and a big part of that is being vulnerable yourself, right? They can't, you can't try and portray yourself. Believe me, I know a lot of different investors in the industry and from small seed funds to very, very well-known multi-billion dollar VC funds in Silicon Valley. All different types of people, all different types of images that they portray, authentic, authentic or otherwise. I think the, the least effective sort of you know, way to approach it is that you have it all figured out as an investor and you're just going like, to just drop and dispose of this knowledge onto founders and enlighten them so that they can be access- successful. You know, that's, first of all, it's unrealistic because that never works. And also, it's again, it's that's not a way to build trust. The way to build trust is to be a real person, which means we all have vulnerabilities. We all have weaknesses. We all have struggles. We've had struggles in the past. We're struggling with things now. We're going to struggle in the future. Like, you know, those types of things, which can only come out in like organic conversation with founders are what really builds trust. So, I mean, to us, that's just like hammered that home. And then again, tying back to mental health and wellness. The other thing is, you know, these days, I was thinking about this the other day that these days, a lot of things have changed over the last few years in the startup VC world. First of all, valuations are sky high. Startups are raising more earlier than has ever been done. And, and funding rounds are getting done faster than it's ever, ever gotten done. So you have these relationships that are getting rushed. You know, everyone's just like jumping in and like, these are people you're going to be in business with for hopefully 10 plus years. But you're like rushing into this stuff. Here's what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed is people are still people. Founders still are going to go through a lot in trying to build their business, not just from a business standpoint, from a personal standpoint. And so founders being human beings and having flaws and having needs and struggling with sort of their own mental wellness, even if it's just burnout, are real issues that investors we believe should be paying a lot closer attention to and trying to provide resources for whenever possible. So those are some of the things that are sort of that we pay attention to 
as we've you know invested in more and more companies. And John, that dovetails well into another thought and question I had just thinking about this time with you. You know, the entrepreneurs that I know, right, are are interesting people. And it's a lot of times they, by design and the way that they're wired, they don't want help from anybody. That's why they're an entrepreneur. And so when you look on your website and it, you know, it touts rightfully so, we partner with entrepreneurs and help them build truly transformational companies. And now hearing all this focus on on mental wellness and, and stability and balance in life, like what is the value proposition? I mean, why why do they need you? Yeah, you know, we have this we have this phrase that says uh, we meet founders where they are, because the other thing we've learned, you know, so we've I think between TechStars, Blue Note, and Firebrand, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's something like 80, 80 or so companies we've invested in, and what we've learned is one size fits all does not work because can't just say, here's our value add. You know, we will help you raise money and we will help you recruit and we will help you form a sales plan. Well, they may not need any of that. You know, so what we do is we go in and again, through like open, honest, transparent discussions with the founders, figure out what do they need? What do they really need? Sometimes it's helping them figure out what they need. And it's not telling them what they need. It's by asking questions and being Socratic about it. So when we everyone sort of agrees, okay, these are the biggest things we need today, right now, we go off and whether we can help directly ourselves or someone in our network we can pull in to help, that's what we try to do. So that's how we add value. Now, having said that, I've been in tech for over 30 years. My partner, Chris, has been an investor in startups for over 20 years, We've, which only really means we've seen a lot of stuff. And maybe we've seen something that we can draw on to help put in some guardrails or, or something like that. But it really is a sort of case-by-case scenario with how and, and where we add value. And I think the founders appreciate that. Like, we're not, and again, it's not all us. Like, we're, we're not saying we know everything. We're saying we're, we're going to try and sort of boil it down to exactly what you need according to what we're hearing from you. And then we're going to go out and, and, and help. And so that's, that's really what we try to do. A, you know, a lot of times, sure, sometimes it falls into a bucket of fundraising strategy. Well, when you're talking about fundraising strategy, that sometimes ties back to messaging. So we help them with their messaging. That kind of overlaps with sales and marketing. It overlaps with recruiting because it's your vision and your message. It's really going to attract the best, the best talent. And so it rarely is just one or two things. Uh, I really like that and respect it. I mean, he, you know, whether it's it's... TV shows or movies that you've watched. I mean, the the venture capital world definitely has that sort of, it's been personified as like this, more like vulture capital than venture capital. Like we're going to come in and get you this money and then we're going to make all of it and you get to go start over and do it again. So I just love that approach. And and really the, the differentiator to me today is is just this passion and focus on the mental side of it. And, uh, you know, if I was starting to kind of summarize our conversation over the last hour or so, a phrase I wrote down not too long into the podcast was just that you just got a servant heart and it just shows through and your, your compassion for what you do, you know, going back to talking about, you know, you had a lot of time where you were feeling lost. Like, I think that's just part of life and figuring it out, you know, but you can't let it overtake everything, or then you really are lost. And so I think all those things, if we're talking about crossroads and defining moments, really are what got you to the platform that you're offering to 30 plus portfolio companies today. And that's, that's just pretty freaking cool. And, you know, at age 30 to compare yourself to Dell, yeah, you would feel pretty small, but, you know, some of us are late bloomers and our success comes a little later in life. And, you know, for all the listeners out there that are feeling that way, it's like, you just got to keep putting your head down, waking up and so much of life is just showing up. So thanks for showing up here today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. And I agree with everything you said. And, uh, you know, I think the, the last thought I'll have here is obviously, you know, we're all in this very driven atmosphere in business. 
And that seems to be like the most well-respected attribute, right? To be a hustler, to be driven, to be a hard charger. You know, and I think you, you can't apply that to all aspects of your life. You got to give yourself a break, you know, once in a while. I was having this conversation with my son the other day, like, you got to cut yourself some slack because we're all human. We all have flaws. We're always going to have flaws. Like, you know, it's, I think sometimes just a matter of accepting that and, and knowing that mistakes are going to happen, but just keep learning and good stuff will, will result from that. And so continuing that theme for just, just one more little tidbit I want to get out of you here. We ask on this podcast it, to get your version of, of the saying, it's, you know, you've all heard it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But then we turn around and say, you know, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And I loved how you were like, you know, if I could go back and talk to myself 20 years ago, or now you're, you know, you're obviously having a positive impact on your son. Like thinking about this podcast as this medium to just capture the true you that that is going to be captured in time forever. We can go back a hundred years from now and and listen to to John's answer to this question. You know, what do you want the original you to know about yourself today? And then also thinking about that for for not only your son, but just the the next generation of John Fines that come up in the venture capital world. Yeah, I'd say probably two things. You know, first of all, it's like you'll get there, right? Like just keep being true to yourself, being true to what what you have a passion for, what you, what excites you, and follow that thread. You know, it's gonna take you a while probably to figure out exactly what it is that you can do for a living that where you like you jump out of bed in the morning, you're so excited, but like follow that general thread uh, whenever you can identify it. And sometimes it's just a matter of just like a process of elimination. But I can tell you that secondly, you know, the, the best thing for me is when I hear other people, you know, because references are currency in our business, right? Like that's how we win deals a lot is from founders talking to founders we've invested in. And, you know, I really want people to, to understand, like, we care, like we actually care, right? I think, I think the worst thing is apathy, right? If you're apathetic about people around you, or you do business with, you're in the wrong business, right? It's like, you're not, you're not in something that excites you. I want people to recognize that, like, we genuinely care. We not just about our money and our investment and yes, our our business goal is to make a good return for our investors. We care about the founders we invest in. We care about their business. Like we're going to show up. And so I would say that's, it's hugely important. It's a core part of our ethos. And I hope that it, it comes through in, in the way we, we interact with people. Well, John, thank you for showing us a little insight into, into you and, and how you've climbed to get where you are. You're certainly the epitome of of just hard work and determination, you know, get you to the top. So appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>